Welcome to the Stanford Psychology Podcast, where leading psychologists come to share their most recent work. I'm Angie, and for this week's episode, we have Dr. Elika Bergelson. Elika is a Crandall Family Assistant Professor at Duke University's Department of Psychology and Neuroscience. Her research aims to understand the interplay of processes during language acquisition. And in this episode, we chat about a recent perspective piece titled The Comprehension Boost in Early World Learning, Older Infants Are Better Learners. We talk about how babies learn words and how researchers get to know what babies know. Without further ado, here's our conversation. For joining on the podcast today, um, I am very excited to talk to you about this recent perspective article titled "The Comprehension Boost in Early World Learning: Older Infants Are Better Learners." So maybe we can just start by unpacking the title a little bit. The comprehension boost. What does that even mean? Yeah. So one thing um, that our work has been showing um, is that. Around the first birthday, uh, babies start to be much better at understanding what people are saying, and this is interesting because there was sort of a view for many decades in the field that for the first year of life, babies are just busy figuring out the sounds of their language and not yet tying sound to meaning, and that only around the first birthday do they start to combine. Sound with meaning, figuring out that ball refers to a ball object.、Um, but what we have found, and what other folks have found across a series of studies, is that actually you can find the first hints of understanding words as early as six, seven, eight, nine months、um, across different languages、um, in different uh, samples. Uh, but that this sort of modest but robust comprehension level.、Uh, Improves drastically at around the first birthday, so we have dubbed that the comprehension boost,、um, and that that's what we're talking about there. Oh, interesting. So one thing that I was thinking about because it sounds like it's almost saying that at some point during the early early childhood, the kids suddenly have this like、um, almost like qualitative change in the way they're understanding the words. Is this something special to language? Do we see this kind of qualitative shift in other domains? Yeah, that's a really great question. So、uh, that depends on who you ask. I think that the sort of、um, default hypothesis about how babies learn is that they get better at stuff over time, gradually as their experiences accrue. But occasionally, we do see things that look like they're more qualitative shifts, like what you're saying. So, for instance,、um, when we think about babies' social skills,、um, other folks, like、uh, my colleague Mike Tomasello, have proposed that at around age one, babies start to understand. That other people are participating in social reference, are talking about other stuff,、um, and that baby's insight into understanding this is a big change that happens at around the first birthday, and that this might in fact be what facilitates something like what we're seeing here—the comprehension boost. Other folks have also talked about. So, for instance, Elizabeth Spelke's work proposes that babies towards the end of the first year of life get this insight about other people's minds, and that other people have ideas that they're trying to relay about objects and agents in the world,、um, and that this might be something that sparks a what seems like a qualitative shift from the outside. Now, whether something actually is、uh, properly called qualitative or quantitative, there's a lot of debate about exactly what that would mean. What I mean here is that it looks like something that's a non-linear improvement. 
I see. I guess then that kind of begs the questions of how do we even know about this? Um, so, do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about how do we even know what babies knows? Because they apparently cannot really tell us what they know. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's actually one of the fascinating parts of studying comprehension or receptive knowledge,、um, as opposed to production. So.、Um, It would be much easier if babies could just give a clear signal that they know what you're talking about.、Um, but in fact, it's something that's very hard, I think, for parents to appreciate.、Um, in part because in daily life we give redundant cues. So you might point at something, or look at something, or put something in your child's hands as you talk about it. And so then it's a little bit harder to tell. Well, do they know what you're talking about, or are they just responding to what you're touching or looking at, or what they are touching or looking at, for instance? So I think actually that's one of the reasons that、um, it took a little while to figure. That babies do understand a little bit about what words mean at six, seven, eight, nine months,、um, because our methods need to be a little bit more fine-grained and sophisticated. It's harder for parents to perceive that. So in my lab and in others, there's sort of two ways、um, that folks have looked at this so far.、Uh, the main method,、uh, by far, is something called looking while listening, or sometimes people call it language-guided looking, or sometimes people call it. Um, intermodal preferential look at anyway. There's a bunch of things that people call it,、uh, but the basic idea is you put two pictures on a screen or two video clips on a screen. Let's say a shoe and a ball, and then you say, "Look at the ball," and you measure where the baby looks, and you do this a number of times. You want to make sure that you. Show sometimes the picture that you're talking about is on the left side of the screen. Sometimes it's on the right side of the screen.、Um, the order that the、uh, questions occur,、um, you want to change that for various reasons of experimental design and control.、Uh, but basically, across babies and across trials, you look for an effect of did they look more at the right picture, and so that is our sort of proxy for do they understand the word. So、um, I I actually always have this kind of questions related to this looking while listening method. Do we do we know like what are the mechanisms that are actually kind of supporting infants to direct their gaze at the thing that they're listening, like trying to find almost like this semantically match thing in the world to the sound they're hearing? Because I'm thinking like as adult as an adult, for example, if I hear the word. Ball. Like my first reaction is never that. Oh, am I going to supposed to just like scan my environment and find a ball, and I'm just going to look at it? So why do babies do that? Like, do we know why this method works? Yeah, that's that's I think a deep philosophical question.、Um, I do think that it is something that you can't help but do actually, and this is a very very in fact almost everything that we do with babies comes from work that's first established with adults. So this method with babies is built on、uh, something called the visual world paradigm that、uh, Mike Tannenhaus and colleagues have been using、um, with great、uh, success in helping us understand the real time spoken word comprehension process. And then Anne Fernald and Roberta Golinkoff and Kathy Hershkovic adapted it. To this infant version that we use today,、um, in its different forms. But if you were sitting at the dinner table and somebody said, "Wow, look at the fork," you would have to try really hard not to do that. If you know what a fork is, it would be very strange behavior for you to not respond to that person by seeking out the fork to look at. And that's the idea in these experiments: is we set up the scene so you know the room is boring. There's nothing else going on. There's this big screen with big pictures in front of the baby, and then they hear this very inviting sentence that says, "Look at the spoon, fork, whatever."、Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's、uh, relying on this sort of intrinsic thing we do as communicators and as language understanders. 
Now, what exactly is going on there to launch that uh, initial saccade? Uh, we know a little bit about that um, from adult research, what kinds of things modulate that. So you have influences both from your expectations about what might be talked about and from the signal itself. So as soon as you hear those first few phonemes of the word, you're already uh, looking for things that would be consistent with that. Um, so there's sort of a lot of different things going on under the hood uh, that dictate where you put your gaze, uh, but it's a very reliable thing that we as human communicators uh, and language users do. It's very amazing to hear about how like some some kind of principles are already present at birth that kind of help young very very young infants to do that. Um, did you did you mention that there's a second method to understand? Oh, yes. the Thank you. Like, how do we know what babies understand? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Thanks. I dropped that thread. So um, there's eye tracking is I would say a bar. Eye tracking is the most common way that we look at this. Um, other groups um, have also used EEG, so electroencephalography, uh, which is a method where you put a little cap on babies' heads, um, or there's a fancier version called MEG, magnetoencephalography, um, where you basically are looking at the electrical signals emitted by the brain, and we have expectations about uh, what kind of uh, time signature you see from this electricity coming from the brain uh, relative to what you're processing. So sort of the most classic effect in uh, the EEG language literature and some other subfields is called the N400, which is your expectation um, about how a sentence might end. For instance, you also get an N400 for other things. But the classic example is I like my coffee with cream and sugar is what most people would say. But if you heard the sentence, I like my coffee with cream and socks, your brain, mm -hmm. 400 milliseconds after hearing the word socks, gives this very robust response. I was not expecting that word. Okay, so then how do we translate that kind of a method to look at what babies understand? There, the most typical thing that gets done is you present them with a mismatch sometimes. So you would show them a picture like of an apple and say, look at the apple. But then on other trials, you would show them a picture of a shoe and say, look at the apple. So there's a mismatch between what they're seeing and what they're hearing. So this is a method that uh, folks like Eugenio Parise and uh, Gergay Shebra have used uh, to look at word comprehension in nine-month-olds, sort of relying on an unexpected pairing of word and referent as another signal. So if you respond showing that something is unexpected, that must mean you had an expectation that could be violated. Interesting. So now let's say that we have known that babies well do after using all of these like wonderful methods, we do know that they are uh, exhibiting this qualitative shift in around, um, uh, I think one one year old. Um, so now I guess the question is, what exactly is going on around that age? Like what drives the change? Yeah, that's um, that's a million dollar question. Well, maybe million dollars isn't quite the right number, but uh, that is what we'll be looking at um, in our next uh, grant project, trying to dig into what might be underlying this boost. So I should say the way that we're currently thinking about sort of the stages um, of uh, development uh, of early word comprehension is that this early period um, is more of a sort of brute force association building type period because you don't yet have sophisticated social or cognitive skills, but you have an amazing ability to crunch the speech stream and some expectations about um, how words and reference might work and how generalization should happen. So then around the first birthday, we see this comprehension boost. And then later on, you're not done yet. Obviously, there's massive differences between what a one-year-old can understand and what you and I can understand. So there's continuing development. Um, but given that there is this uh, boost, what is underlying it? So one thing that we set out to look at um, in some 
in a big project uh, called the seedling study in my lab uh, was, can we look for changes in the input and language environment around children that might explain this boost. So does something shift in the way that parents are talking to children and how often they're using common words, in which words they're saying, and the types of utterances they're using, like questions or uh, statements or commands? Um, is there something different that we can measure from their experiences that would explain this boost? And at least so far in the ways that we've looked at it, it looks like the answer is no. Um, that, that might prove to be uh, something I amend in the future if we find another clever way of looking at the input data, but at least in the uh, ways that we've looked at it so far, there's no big way that parents shift how they talk over six to 18 months. I'll put one caveat on that statement, which is that it does look like parents start talking to their kids a lot more once the kids themselves start talking. But this doesn't happen at exactly the same age. And so Babies might say their first word anywhere from, you know, roughly 10 months, to even out to 18 months. And so parents talking more to talkers isn't time linked to your 365th day of life. Um, so that's just sort of one caveat to keep in mind. Okay, but coming back to your question, so what might be underlying this boost if it isn't, or at least isn't entirely something in the input? Um, so the sort of, there's a few different hypotheses that we're pursuing about this. One of them, um, as I was alluding to before, is that it might be something about your ability to understand other minds or your social referential abilities. Um, in particular, one thing we're going to be looking at is your ability to understand pointing. So pointing is a, a sort of big milestone in social and cognitive development. It's not, I think, to parents as exciting as, you know, your first steps or your first words um, or things like that. Um, and I think it's not as remarkable. It's not the kind of thing you put in your baby book. But if you are looking for hints that your child is a sophisticated creature, waiting for them to point or understand pointing is a, a really cool one. Um, in fact, it's pretty shocking to work with a little baby, like a six month old and see that when you very explicitly point and look somewhere, they have no interest in looking at where you're pointing. They will just look at your face or at your hand and not actually at the thing you're trying to direct their attention to. But around the first birthday, they seem to get much better at understanding pointing and at starting to point themselves. So our thinking is that this might be a sort of index or a potential prerequisite for the comprehension boost. Um, so one thing we'll be doing is uh, looking at whether we find that babies who are understanding pointing in a robust way are also um, about to have that comprehension boost uh, by looking at this longitudinally um, in babies around the first birthday. So that's one set of possibilities that it's something about social referential intent. So if it's social referential intent, we're trying that out by looking at pointing. Pointing has been tied to language skills uh, very robustly. There's several meta-analyses about this, so it seems like a great place to start. It could be something not social referential at all. It could just be improvement in more specific linguistic subskills. So one of the things you need to do to understand what people are talking about is to have a good representation of the sounds and what they're saying. Um, and so there's a few different sort of flavors of that hypothesis. One of them is that um, you become better at representing how a word is supposed to sound also around the first birthday. So we actually find that six and seven month olds don't really care if you say, where's the apple instead of where's the apple. They still look at the picture to the same degree. There's uh, several studies uh, that around age one, uh, they get better at this as well. So if you say, look at the tog instead of look at the dog, they look less than when you correctly pronounce it. So something like this better solidification of how a word sounds might be one of the things that lets you listen and process the input more efficiently, which in turn 
is a sort of rich get richer way of uh, catapulting your comprehension. So there's a couple other uh, possibilities we're exploring. Those are two of them. Another one, which I was referring to a little bit before, is this sort of metalinguistic awareness. When you start talking yourself, it might be that that sparks this insight that uh, you know these words are symbols and they refer to stuff out there in this abstract way. And I can use them. And when I say them, people know what I'm talking about. Um, oh, so when they say them, you know, maybe they are trying to get me to understand what they're talking about, right? There could be this sort of um, metalinguistic spark that comes from the onset of production. Uh, that's another possibility. So those are sort of a few different ways that we're thinking of trying to figure out what changes internal to the child um, actually uh, might support and underlie this boost. Yeah, this sounds amazing. Thank you so much for laying out all of the possibility that um, can be uh, helped to explain the changes that we are observing in uh, young kids. So I do want to kind of go back to perhaps the first set of possibility, which is the changing the environment. Because um, I'm wondering, can you, do you want to say more about how how are you collecting the data? Like, how do you know what young infants are getting at? And I'm also kind of thinking about, in addition to the parents, um, maybe as the young young children get older, they are kind of being brought to parks more, and strangers talk to to them more, and maybe at some time they are going to start daycare or go to preschool. And then I feel like there's going to be a shift in the source of the uh, linguistic input that they're getting. And would you predict that that shift will is going to matter? Yeah, so those are all great questions. So um, there's a variety of ways that sort of historically the field has looked at what babies' lives are like. Um, one of the most common, um, I would say, is to go to their house and turn on a camcorder and record <laughs> um, for, you know, an hour. Um, you can right away imagine that there's some things that are excellent about that approach and some things that are challenging about that approach. Um, one of the things that's excellent about it is you get sort of uh, to see babies in their own home environment. You can see what they're seeing, what they're experiencing in sort of a typical setting. Um, one of the cons about that is that um, it turns out uh, families might not act totally normal when there's a camera pointed at them and maybe an experimenter hovering nearby. And whether that matters depends on what aspect of their experience you're trying to capture. So you can imagine that if it's something about the way they pick up objects, it probably doesn't matter if there's an experimenter standing by. If you're sort of hovering, waiting for them to talk a certain way, <laughs> um, you can imagine that that would matter. So that's something actually that we find is that in our video, our shorter video recordings of families, um, parents talk more than in our day-long audio recordings, um, sort of on average. So that is another method that um, has grown in popularity, I'd say in the last decade or so, um, is these long form naturalistic uh, recordings where basically you just put a little vest on a baby and put a little recorder in that vest and then have them go live their life. Um, this is nice um, because it does provide a longer uh, sample of their experience. So those recordings can be up to 16 hours, probably longer now with modern battery power. Um, and it gives you a sort of more uh, maybe real to life um, sample of their experience, um, even if uh, families are you know more sensitized to the presence of a recording, it's a little bit hard to maintain that uh, kind of vigilance uh, for a 16 hour day. And I can certainly tell you just sort of um, anecdotally that the kinds of experiences we capture in the audio recordings to us seem um, 
extremely uh, indicative that parents are behaving as they normally would. <laughs> um, I will I will guess I will leave it there. <laughs> On the video in contrast, you do sometimes have for some parents, I think they're totally acting normally. Um, but I do think that we as adult humans anyway, are more sensitive uh, to video taking place than to audio taking place. The flip side of that, of course, is that with audio only, you can't know, well, what were they looking at when you said that? Uh, but you can still infer that to some degree. So if I say to you, um, okay, hang on a second, I have to go and grab your sippy cup, I don't have it. It's pretty clear to you that there isn't a sippy cup right there. Um, and so even though you can't see what the baby's seeing, you can make some inferences about that. So that's one of the things that we do when we're listening to the audio recordings and video recordings. Okay, so that was all by way of sort of background about how we do these recordings. Uh, one other nice thing that I'll mention about those audio recordings is um, a lot of labs around the world have collected data using those kinds of recordings. And while there are often really big challenges with doing cross-cultural or cross-linguistic comparison, um, you know, it isn't uh, typical in lots of sociocultural settings to go into a lab and sit in front of a computer and respond to computerized recordings or, you know, things like that. Um, however, just going about your day with an extra piece of clothing on is something that is sort of within uh, the range of normal possibilities um, around the world. So that's been one nice way that we've built collaborations and worked on various speech technology tools to figure out what's life like around the world. Okay, but then coming back to your question. So um, there are gonna be changes over time in the baby's environment. Um, so you talked about maybe they start going to daycare, maybe they have different caretakers. Isn't that going to be a change? Um, and the answer to that is absolutely. Um, I think that there's massive variability in babies' lives sort of on any dimension that you might want to look at. And one of the challenges of being a researcher looking at potential environmental effects is figuring out, well, what things should we bother counting and measuring, right? So I could uh, go and make a tally of how many pairs of shoes there are in the closet, and maybe that would correlate with something, um, but that doesn't strike me as a great property to go and tag um, in the video recordings. In contrast, if we look at what uh, percent of the time are babies hearing language directed to them versus directed to other people, that's a property um, that we know babies are sensitive to and might be a reasonable uh, type of thing to want to measure. Okay, but I lost the thread of the question. Bring me back to what I was trying to answer. Oh, I think I was wondering if like, the, yeah, just like the, the change in their linguistic environment or the kind of just like their external environment, more places they're going, more faces they're seeing and right. more kind of sort of relationship they're forming. Does that matter? Yes, yes. Okay, good. Um, so there's going to be all kinds of um, rhythms to the day. So one researcher who looks at this is um, Caitlin Fozzi, I think has done some really nice work thinking about rhythms at different levels in a baby's day. So sort of regardless of where you are in the world and what your life is like, you're going to nap. But whether you nap alone in a quiet room or while uh, being carried while your mother is uh, doing something um, or taking care of somebody else, um, or whether your grandfather has you in a stroller, right? That's gonna be really variable, but all babies are gonna sleep for a good chunk of the day, every day, especially when they're really little. So there's gonna be rhythms at the day level. All babies are gonna eat, they're gonna need to be changed, they're gonna need to be bathed, right? All that kinds of stuff is gonna be pretty consistent. There also are gonna be changes at the sort of week versus weekend level um, in many sociocultural contexts, right? Um, if you have parents that work or different caretakers in the home, um, you might have different people, you know, you might have siblings who are at school, you might have um, uh, caretakers who are more or less present during a weekday versus a weekend, right? So there'll be rhythms at that level. There's gonna be weather-based rhythms, right? So if you're somewhere super cold, you're probably not spending six hours a day outside like you might in the summertime. 
right? So all of those things are going to be contributing to differences in environmental experiences. Um, one thing that we do see in this um, seedlings data set that I mentioned um, is that uh, the amount of language that babies uh, are hearing in terms of the number of words or the number of types of words or the kinds of utterances is actually quite consistent month to month um, within the same group of kids. So that study looked at about four dozen babies um, and there weren't big differences month to month. There was large variability across the group, but sort of the average amount of language across different dimensions we looked at was pretty consistent, surprisingly so, month to month. We also find that, you know, there are definitely different caretaking situations, um, but that roughly two thirds of the input came from mom and dad, um, or sorry, two thirds came from just mom. I think three quarters came from mom and dad combined. Um, and so that could be because that's true in the world or because our sampling uh, gives us that kind of information, right? And that's something that we always wanna consider. So for instance, to do a day long audio recording we couldn't have um, that happen in a daycare setting because of the permissions required. You need permission from every single parent and child in the daycare. You know, that becomes um, a hard thing to do. Other researchers have done that. Melanie Soderstrom has looked at that. But you can imagine that there are going to be some things about lived experience that we capture as a function of our sampling method uh, that to varying degrees will reflect the true reality of a child's lived experience. So the amount of other people they interact with is going to be something that varies. Um, we've also in more recent efforts been uh, uh, looking at babies who are born deaf and hard of hearing or babies who are born blind and looking at the language input in their environments. Um, there too, um, in the deaf and hard of hearing sample that we're working with in a collaboration with uh, Derek Houston, uh, these are babies whose families are opting uh, to get cochlear implants and focusing on spoken language uh, development rather than sign language. Um, and so we can look at the language input across um, those groups to answer a variety of questions. Uh, but one thing to keep in mind, for instance, there is that if you have a cochlear implant, then the language that is happening around you isn't necessarily the same thing as the language that you yourself are able to hear mm -hmm. through your um, device, right? So these are just a bunch of dimensions that we want to keep in mind. I would say um, when we have a hypothesis-driven question, like does the number of caretakers make a difference? We go out and we test it. But by and large, we've been surprised to see that there's actually huge variability and that a ton of those variables don't end up predicting things like word comprehension. So um, I know that in, in, the, in the perspective paper you shared, you mentioned a couple of times the kind of the values of using combining methods, both like the observational data and experimental methods. And I think so far we have touched up, touch upon how both of the method works. So I'm kind of wondering if you can share some of your thoughts on how, for example, what are some insights that you can only get from using one method solo and what, for example, are we missing out if we're just sticking to, say, observational data or experimental um, method? Yeah, definitely. So um, it's, I think, unfortunate that I think it's good to get both kinds of data because it's really a pain in the butt to do it. <laughs> so it would have been easier if we could say, hey, just come do our Zoom experiment for five minutes and we'll learn all kinds of things. But I actually think um, that it's important to collect um, observational data about those same children um, if you want to make ties between how your daily life might lead to your knowledge. So um, to take one example, lots of experiments um, will do something like trying to teach a baby a new word in the lab. 
and you can do this. Um, we do the one version of this with eight month olds where we show them, you know, some novel object over and over and give it a label, you know, blick, 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 blick until they get bored. And then we swap out that object or we swap out that word or, you know, we make different kinds of alterations um, to that uh, method to see whether they can build this uh, very quick and dirty sort of word object link. Um, that particular method is uh, called the one picture switch method. It's uh, based on building off of work by Janet Worker and colleagues. Um, there are also, you know, with a three-year-old, you can just say, hey, this one is a FEP. Can you find another FEP and have them pick a FEP, uh, potential FEP off of a tray, right? So there's different ways that you can really quickly um, induce some kind of learning in a child. Now, one, I think, really important question is how similar is that process to actually how babies are learning the real words they come to learn in everyday life? And it's increasingly not obvious to me uh, that some of those parallels go through, in part because of um, work by folks showing that even when you show a baby something like that in the lab, they don't retain it. If they learn it at all in that five minute experiment, they might not retain it five minutes later, um, or that it's actually quite hard to get a baby to learn a word, even if you're doing your best job trying to use the clearest cues possible, right? You're using social reference and you're enunciating clearly and there's nothing else going on. It can still be incredibly hard to elicit learning on a time scale in a lab experiment that you can measure. But we can tell by testing babies on words like shoe or ball or nose, that they are learning the words in their environment. So then, of course, that kicks the can up the road. How much experience do they have with those objects and what's going on uh, when they do hear those reference being talked about? Um, and so without measuring um, everyday experiences, we can't even begin to draw some sort of sense of, well, you have to have heard it dozens of times or hundreds of times or thousands of times, or one very clear instance is enough if they're a certain age or if they have a certain cognitive skill, right? To be able to actually cash out some of our theories from our lab experiments, we have to tie it into the input. Um, and so for instance, I think one thing that's come out from that that's been surprising is that babies are learning in these noisy environments where sometimes the stuff that's being talked about isn't even there. So like a third of the time that mom says shoe, there's no shoe that anybody's paying attention to. Um, and yet uh, babies build their representations and start to understand those words, but they get, you know, hundreds and hundreds of exposures a day. In contrast, even in our clearest cases of trying to teach an eight-month-old or even a 14-month-old a word in the lab, we often can't get them to do it. So that says that there's some sort of disconnect at some part of the process um, where you are going to need either more instances or consolidation or more variability in the um, learning trajectories or just building up representations over time. One thing that we have found by looking at both the baby's home environment and their word comprehension um, is that at six months when babies are just first understanding words, um, this is work that I did with um, Dick Aslan at Rochester, um, the proportion of uh, object presence, which is how often is the stuff that you're talking about actually something the baby's paying attention to in our day-long recording, in our hour-long video. That's correlated with their word comprehension in the lab, hmm. suggesting that there is something, there's some signal there, right? There's something in the home environment that we're able to measure that we can tie to their knowledge state. Now, the degree to which we can get specific and precise in making these links, I think is still an open question, but I think it's a little bit, um, it doesn't give us the full picture to only look at the home environment data and the experience without measuring the knowledge that that gives rise to, and only measuring that knowledge without trying to tie it back to, well, how could that have come to be, um, also doesn't give us the full picture. So that's why I think it's sort of important to do both 
I think there's many amazing programs of research that focus just on one part of that equation. But personally, I've become growingly, increasingly interested in how we sort of make those links. So so far, I think we have talked a lot about like children, like what's going on with young children as they're kind of growing up and learning、uh, their first language. And I'm pretty sure that there are probably like parents out there listening to this episode that that might be wondering. So are there things that they can do to help their kids learn language better? So for example, you mentioned that oh, object presence is kind of predictive of their performance in in lab testing. But I imagine it probably is like too extreme if they hear、uh, they just decide to well every time I'm. Going to say a word. I'm going to make sure the kids are going to see the object right there, right now. So、um, I'm just kind of curious: Are there insights that you have got from doing、uh, this line of research that can be potentially informative to the parents out there、um, trying to help their kids navigate this com- complicated world? Yeah. So I think,、um, generally speaking, I think one insight I have is that the parents who ask you this question. Um, are usually doing everything 100% right and have this worry that they could be, you know, helping their kid get into Stanford or something like that if only they set up their、um, infant experiences in just the same way、um, or just the right way.、Um, and I, I don't think there's any kind of magic formula to that. I think actually an amazing part of language development is that we have incredibly different lived experiences and yet we all converge on the language of our community、um, and.、Uh, Do a wonderful job at doing that. So、um, another part of that question is: Would there be a benefit to understanding words a month or two earlier versus a month or two later?、Um, in I think that's an incredibly hard thing to either operationalize or measure. I don't know that we can、uh, push things around in that way or not.、Um, this is something that's been looked at with production, though. So I can say a little bit about that. Where when we, for instance, some babies are later to start talking. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turns out that I think roughly half of babies that are late to start talking, if you look years later, they have no、uh, differences from their peers in any way.、Um, so a large proportion of、uh, kids who you might think, oh no, my baby's late to start talking, turn out to- totally typical.、Um, in other cases, that might be an early indicator that there is something there that might benefit from interventional support. But you're sort of talking about the other end of the spectrum. So, among typical development, is there anything we could do to give kids an extra boost?、Um, I worry a lot about that kind of a framing, to be honest with you. So, I would say that that has gotten us in a lot of trouble、um, of being in the business of telling parents how they should or shouldn't talk to their kids and what they're doing wrong. I think that、um, language and social and cognitive development isn't like.、Um, You know, food safety. So、uh, we know not to give kids honey before age one because they could get botulism, and that would be terrible. And so we can have rules like don't give kids honey before age one. I think we are nowhere near that level of understanding of the mechanisms、um, and、uh, their implementability、um, in anything like social cognitive development. That being said, talking to your kids a lot is good. Right, so、um, interacting with them like they're conversational partners, even if they aren't responding to what you're saying. So, you know, one thing that I think we can take from、uh, this evidence of early word comprehension before babies are walking, before they are pointing, before they're talking, is that they're understanding at least a little bit of what you say. And so, you don't have to dumb it down and talk to them in a certain kind of way. You don't have to always be showing them exactly what you're talking about, but engaging with them and exposing them to more language. Um, is going to be how they get that sort of primary data.、Uh, on the one hand, sort of、um, 
you know, it sounds a little bit like robotic, like I will import the data into the child's brain, um, right? That isn't what I mean, but it is the data that they're learning from, right? When they're figuring out the really complicated aspects of language, like what on earth does the word of mean? And when is it appropriate to use that word? That's a big data crunching problem. And the more language you have um, in your experience, uh, sort of the easier it might be to figure out what some things like function words or some of the grammatical components are doing. But it's also true on a, you know, not a robot data import uh, setting, just in terms of being a person. So social, uh, socially, um, it's a nice uh shift in perspective to consider your small child as a conversational partner and learner, right? So there's lots of ideas that we as adults are um, naturally driven to teach and explain pedagogically. This is an idea from um, Shebra and Gerge, um, researchers um, in uh, Hungary. Um, that we're naturally driven to explain things and that babies are naturally prepared to learn things. Um, I think that uh, treating them as potential uh, co-conspirators, maybe is not the right word, potential, you know, family members, loved ones, and friends, even when they're little and mostly are, you know, spitting up and <laughs> napping and not talking back yet, um, is a good idea, uh, right? Engaging with them with, um, love, affection, and time um, and uh, words is always going to be good. Just a kind of a small follow-up question because you mentioned that like not to kind of dumb, dumb it down, but I know that adults have this kind of intrinsic tendency to use child-directed speech and infant-directed speech. Is it good to just keep doing that? Or like, are there studies looking at like kids who are spoken to with just like completely just like normal adult tone versus kids who are like naturally exposed to a lot of those like child-directed speech? Yeah, so there's um, some work, uh, there's a ton of work on child-directed speech in general. Um, so we know that it's uh, extremely common across lots of different sociocultural contexts. Um, there are some uh, cultural contexts where there's a lot less infant-directed speech, um, or there's also, uh, maybe more to the point, there are cultural contexts where a lot of the raising of children happens um, not in a sort of one-on-one -on -one stay at home parent all day type of setting, but rather when there's lots of children around and a lot of uh, time spent by young children around slightly older children, rather than say a primary caretaker who's already a full fledged language user. Um, so the other thing is that there's a big range of things that people mean when they say child directed speech. So on the one end, there's like goo goo gaga, here's Binky or something <laughs> like that. Um, and on the other end, there's just this sort of, um, over the top enthusiastic, like, wow, here's your ball, <laughs> which, um, you know, is, uh, can be grating to adult listeners, but seems to be very appealing to infant listeners. Mm -hmm. um, there also, though, are big differences about that, um, even within language. So apparently, American English, um, infant directed speech sounds a little bit insane to British American moms. <laughs> um, so there's going to be some differences even within a given language about, you know, British versus American family culture. Um, there's also going to be differences um, in different um, ethnic groups in different sociocultural um, contexts about speaking when spoken to or about different ways of expressing um, enthusiasm that's going to look different uh, and that might sometimes be specialized vocabulary. Um, so for instance, when we talk to babies, you know, we're likely to say, oh, is that your choo-choo? Instead of, um, and if you said that to an adult, that would be so crazy, right? Like if you saw an adult holding a toy train and you said, is that your choo-choo? Like, that would be crazy. Um, so there's some vocabulary items that we might use differently, but 
infant-directed speech or child-directed speech is also the way that you talk to children. That being said, sorry, I'm sort of rambling. You're going to have to find the parts of this that you think are interesting. Um, That being said, there's also a way that people talk to their pets (laughs) that actually has some similarities with infant-directed speech, right? We all know that person who um, you know, maybe uses the term fur baby and says, you know, wow, Fluffy really deserved that treat. Wow. Or whatever. In a way that sounds like infant-directed speech, even though they have no reason to think that that's going to benefit their dog in learning language. Right. So it seems to be something we're driven to do. Um, it's quite prevalent uh, cross-culturally, though it manifests in different ways and to different degrees. Um, I don't know that we have a sample of children who no one has ever spoken to in a particularly child-directed way that we can fairly compare to a sample of children who have gotten sort of full blast child-directed speech their whole life. Um, So I don't know that we can make that kind of comparison. What we can say is that babies like listening to infant-directed speech. Um, And why that is, um, it's an attentional spotlight. It's more exciting. It's more salient. It helps them sort of zero in on their caregiver. There's all kinds of ideas about why that might be. Um, But there too, I think, you know, I would would hesitate to tell a parent to turn up or down the infant-directed speech knob. And I would say, if you're looking for something to do, talking more, however you feel comfortable talking is going to be better than trying to talk in a particular way. Yeah, this is so interesting. So we are running against the time a little bit. So I do want to um, wrapping up the conversation by zooming out a little bit. Uh, so moving forward, what's in your perspective, the most exciting question in language acquisition? Like what's something that you really, really want to see being answered? Oh, that is a really good big picture question. Oh, well, I mean, I have my personal interest, which is sort of coming back to the beginning, which is what lets kids learn certain aspects of language, sort of what are the actual mechanisms underlying that learning process? In my work, I tend to focus on the beginnings of this process, often looking at things like concrete concrete nouns. Um, And, you know, we talked about that comprehension boost. I would love to say, you know, five years from now, 10 years from now, I nailed it. Here's what happens. You know, you get this and then you get that and that's what happens. But I think that versions of that question exist all over the language development space. Um, And I think that the most exciting kinds of questions help us figure out the mechanisms underlying change. And I think you can ask that at so many different levels. So that could be about learning your language's morphology, right? How does the S ending um, come to signify the plural um, among other things in English? Um, You could ask that at a pragmatics level. So when do you figure out something like I'm being asked a question or someone's telling me to do something or that was sarcastic or that person might be lying, right? There's all kinds of signals that we're relaying in our uh, language output that children are learning from. And I think uh, figuring out how that transfer and uptake process happens at all of those different levels of analysis um, is still by and large unsolved. Um, And I think that making progress on sort of all those dimensions and the crosstuck between them, I think it's become increasingly clear in the preceding decades that learning sounds and learning meanings and learning grammar and learning prosody and learning pragmatics are all happening to different degrees at the same time. So sort of figuring out what is the order of operations, how mutable is it, how changeable is it, um, and what causes 
change over time uh, is sort of the age old question has been and will continue to be one of the fundamental questions about language development. Thank you so much for listening. We would love to hear what you think of this episode or our podcast in general. Or if you have any other suggestion for future guests or topics for the podcast, you can click on the link to the survey attached in the show notes or reach us at stanfordpsychpodcast at gmail.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter at stanfordpsychpod. Finally, if you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere so more people can find us. Thank you so much.